I knew that there was something I needed to do about fixing the fashion space. So when I made the leap, it was a calculated one. This is going to take around 200 to 500 years to decompose. Wow. One in three young women. Wow, that's crazy. Think that a piece of clothing is old after wearing one. Like, that's actually quite disgusting. But, but in fact, when they put a tracker in it to see where it actually ends up, it travels around the world and then ends up in Africa to be dumped in their landfill. And it's so shocking. So shocking. Primark is never empty. Or the risk of innovation. Yeah. You can be too soon. That's a very compelling right? selling point. It's very important for businesses today that they're thinking of starting out to really understand what motivates your potential buyer. But the mistake I made is... My next guest is Tanya Saha Gupta, the founder of Resale Future, a peer-to-peer -peer platform that enables fashion brands to access their own circular marketplace. Tanya, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Same. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so you started this business pre-pandemic a few yes. years ago, and this was following a corporate career, right? You worked yes. in finance. So what was the leap like for you? It must have been pretty scary to go from the cushy corporate job to the wild west of startup land. It was. It was It was a definitely a big, a big leap, but I think... I was so prepared for it. I think the, the, the time I spent in the corporate career, um, very early on, I, I realized that I, like, I was learning a lot. I enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed working with the people I worked with. But I knew that there was something I needed to do about fixing the fashion space. Mm. Um, I, I was always someone who got hand-me-downs from my cousins or shared clothes with my friends. And when I moved to this country, I realized that that just never happened. Mm. Um, so while I was in my finance career, um, I was learning a lot, but I realized that they, there was so much space for improvement in the resale space. Um, there really wasn't much change since eBay was created yeah, in the 90s. True. It still was a very, um, you know, you have to take photos, you have to put in the information, you have to um, then communicate with the buyers and sellers it was still the same as how it was in the 90s. Yeah, so, so true. it just didn't make sense. Yeah. I, was see, I was working with all these tech companies who were innovating. Um, you know, it, it just didn't make sense. And mm. so when I made the leap, it was a calculated one. Yeah. Um, but um, it was less scary. Like now thinking about it, it seems like, oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> but at the time I was so excited. And These like, things always seem crazier at a distance, don't yeah. they? But when you're in it, you know it's right. You know it's important. Yeah. You've got to take that leap. It's only with that yeah. time and space where you're like, oh my God, that was wild. That was... was there a particular catalyst for you? Was there something that like you saw or an experience where you were like, this is really problematic. I really need to set out to solve yeah. this problem with fast fashion. Obviously yeah. you talked about coming you know, from India, different yeah. culture, hand-me-downs, but, yeah. but was there something in, like specifically that? Um, for me, um, well, I talk about this, I've talked about this before, but I once had a vegan leather skirt and for me it was, I went to this event and one of these incredible authors talked about, you know, this is not this is going to take around 200 to 500 years to decompose. Wow. And I realized like I just never thought about that. Right. And especially because That's I only wild. wore that skirt once. Wow. So imagine the year and 2523 yeah. and that vegan skirt is still, still floating around. Yeah, and, and the thing is, had I worn it like a hundred times, it would have been a completely different story. But it was not, it was a fast fashion skirt. It was obviously not stitched well enough. It didn't, it didn't last me a second wear. Mm. Um, and I very quickly realized like, that's crazy. Mm. I never thought about it. Obviously we all talk, when we look at straws or we, we look at like single use plastic, we're like so aware that this is gonna you know, outlive us. And, but with clothing, do you know how many people buy clothes and only wear it once? A I lot. Mean, yeah, one in three young women in the UK. Wow, that's crazy. Think that a piece of clothing is old after wearing it once. Like disposable. Yeah. That's pretty disgusting actually, yeah. like one in three. That's yeah. what, I wouldn't have guessed that actually. Yeah, it's crazy. Like so, you'd ask me to guess like maybe two in 10 at a stretch, but yeah. one in three, that's actually quite disgusting. But the reason is, is because fast fashion has made it so accessible yeah. to yeah. just buy new clothes. Mm. Um, it, we've doubled the amount of clothes we produced in the last 10 years. Mm. That's, that's insane. 
do you know what I should have worn? And I'm kicking myself now for this. In my intro episode, which if you yeah. haven't listened to it, yeah. <laughs> definitely start start there and you can listen to the whole yeah. you know, ethos of the podcast and what the show is about. Yeah. But if anyone's actually watching the video, I specifically wore one of my favourite blouses, which um, was my mum's. And this blouse that I wear in this video, I should have worn it today with yeah. this fabulous interview with you. It's a yeah. gorgeous silk dog tooth blouse. Nice. And it's literally older than me it's yeah. literally been on this planet for yeah. longer than I have been alive yeah. and it is in perfect condition it yeah. is so well made there isn't a single stitch that's loose it's one of the best made pieces that I own and yeah. it's and like and my mum wore it when yeah. she was younger than I am now so I definitely see that it definitely yeah. resonates the quality has nosedived the yeah. quantity has absolutely skyrocketed yeah. and I just smiled before we move on too quickly because I yeah. feel like there's already lots of yeah. fun things I want to get into but I smiled before when you said about the plastic straws because yeah. it's so funny on the, exactly the same wavelength with you there because that was exactly what came to mind for me you saying about the vegan leather skirt being around for 500 years yeah. this is why I specifically asked for like a specific example, a particular anecdote, because people need those individual little stats or images or something to have that impact. That's so cool. what you heard that speaker say, that author at the event, yeah. yeah, whilst we know it and we understand on a general level the broader sort of problem, it does take those specific problems to be like, fuck. And the, uh, the thing with the plastic straws is like yeah. really clear visual of a plastic straw being stuck up a turtle's oh, nose, yeah. right? Sure. Like yeah. those things where you're like, wow, it has, you have to have those specific instances to have an impact on people. Yeah. So for you, it was a skirt. The skirt. Yeah. Yeah, 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 which is great. And I think for me, um, you know, just to go back to the point where you're like, you have clothes from your mom that have lasted that long. They still exist. People are still making clothes very well. It's just very rare because mm. the companies that are focusing on producing clothes well are competing with the clothes that are, are not. Mm. So it's really difficult for those businesses to survive. But at the same time, you know, if people are buying to repeat clothes yeah. and for it to last and for you to take care of it and mm. to repair it and for you to pass it on if it mm. doesn't fit you, because clothes will, won't fit you for the rest of your life. Um, so they exist, it's just really difficult and really sad that those companies are kind of fading away mm. or they're having to adopt un like unsustainable practices. And even besides the quality of the production of these gorgeous garments, yeah. you've also got the whole international piece to it as well. You know, the yeah. UK manufacturing economy is dead. Like, yeah. Yeah, dead, it's like non-existent. So you've also got that added carbon impact yeah. the damaging negative side effects of things being produced in china yeah. shipped to the uk i actually think i can't remember the specific stat but there was something about i actually think thomas panton the founder of canopy who was also on the podcast he shared another specific stat about a particular i think it was a t-shirt maybe from h&m yeah. yeah. that had traveled yeah. you know this one yeah it had traveled so far around the world this bloody t-shirt is more of a jet setter than i am yeah no, <laughs> so the the stat was um oh you, you know, know it well i don't know the exact stat but i'll, I'll tell you the story mm. that you know the, the piece of clothing um they basically put a tracker on the take back program right so all these um you know we, we can touch on this later but like a lot of the huge conglomerates are starting these, you know, take back programs mm. to be circular businesses. But in fact, when they put a tracker in it to see where it actually ends up, it travels around the world and then ends up in Africa to be dumped in their landfill. Yeah. So that was just a lie. It's, so it's just crazy. a greenwashing tactic. Yeah, in fact, right? yeah so, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's exactly why, you know, to touch upon that's exactly why we want to help the businesses that are focused on you know, producing well. That aren't just to, greenwashing. To, that aren't just greenwashing, yeah. to be able to access that technology. And it, it shouldn't just be for the big companies that have massive tech budgets. Because yeah. it takes a lot to build it. Mm. Um, and that's why our focus has always been to the small small to medium-sized businesses. Mm. Because they're the ones producing well, they're not mass producing. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Another quick thing that you've just reminded me of as well is that image of, I mean, you mentioned um, the Africa, the landfill there. Yeah. I remember there was this image where you could see the landfill from Atacama space. Atacama Desert, yeah. So, sorry, right? It's in the Atacama Desert. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just, it's been, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so earlier this year, we were for the first time been, a 
we could actually see a pile of clothes in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Exactly. From space. Yeah. Um, and it was so shocking. Everyone so shocking. It's now been dubbed as the floor drobe. The floor drobe. Oh, I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, wow. it's so sad. Like, it does. It does kind of make my stomach churn. And one of the things that I also wanted to get your opinion on related to this whole subject yeah. is the realities of what people can afford or what they think they can afford. And yeah. most of the time, I know you've spoken a lot about this as well, but yeah. people are thinking about themselves. They're looking mm -hmm. after them, you know, number one priority. We're going through a cost of living crisis. Yeah. And Primark is never empty. Yeah. And I know I use Primark as an example because they are like the number one culprit for, yeah. you know, they've got a really bad rap. I mean, to be honest with you, I've had things from Zara that have literally fallen apart at the seams after one wash that have yeah. been in a worse state than, than stuff I have had from Primark years before. Yeah. Um, so I guess like it, this is still a big problem. Like fast fashion isn't going away. You shared that great stat, uh, well, horrible stat earlier, one in three. Young women, yeah. Women yeah. still buy things just kind of for one, you know, one wear only. There's just this kind of disconnect between what we talk about, what we know, the sustainability, circular yeah. economy, what we should be doing. Fashion is such a big polluter, but then you've got that reality of people who are yeah. down on Oxford Street, like piling up and in yeah. Primark again, yeah, as I yeah, say. Absolutely. So, like, where is that going? So when I first started the company, I did a lot of research to understand, you know, is this something that's just in the media or is this something that people are actually putting their money behind? And that is sustainability. And it was really sad to see that actually, yes, the secondhand economy is booming, but a massive part of it is because it's cheaper mm. and because we're going through a cost of living crisis. And the reality still is, is that you know, fast fashion is doing better than ever. It's not slowing down. Yeah. So, you know, I think, in my opinion in the, in the situation is that, of course, it's going to be the great if everyone cared about sustainability. But I think to meet some, like to meet someone halfway, can bring more change, um, and to understand like why why are you buying fast fashion? And it's not just because. Um, you know, everyone's thinking about themselves. It's also because how society has conditioned you to think. I think with the rise of social media, you see influencers wearing clothes once. You see celebrities wearing clothes once. Obviously, they're, they're gifted it or, you know, they're borrowing it. But that's just how our mindset is that we're not good enough if we're not wearing new clothes every time. So I think it's, re and the reality also is, is that no one has time to think about sustainability when you're, you know, struggling to feed your kids or you're, you have, a, I mean, people have 101 problems. So it's, it's tough. And I, I don't think, I think everyone needs to think about it, but we need to understand what are the priorities of the people, why they're spending money and how can you meet them halfway. Mm. Um, I, I think eventually there, I, I also read an amazing stat today that 7 billion pounds of, um, of the retail market is now secondhand. Oh, interesting. So it is growing yeah. and people are now choosing to buy secondhand instead, mm. of sec instead of fast fashion, but it's going to be a slow growth. Mm. And the fact that it is a cheaper proposition is always going to be yeah. helpful. It needs to be easier. You need to, to, as you say, meet customers halfway. I love that, you know, as much as you've got such a great mission and yeah. love to hear more about exactly what Resale Future does and everything, yeah. which obviously we will get stuck into. But you have got this fantastic mission, but you're not under any false pretenses that you're suddenly going to revolutionize the world tomorrow. In yeah. fact, actually, if you take the huge mass of people and if they improve by 1% or a few percent, yeah. it all adds up and it still has this fantastic 100%. impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you saying about, I just wanted to comment as well on the, you mentioned about the rise of influencers and how society's kind of conditioned us. I would actually go like a few steps earlier than yeah. that. I commented before on your outfit, which I love. So for anyone who's actually watching the video, <laughs> leave leave your favorite emoji reaction <laughs> to Tanya's gorgeous outfit here. I'm definitely fangirling. <laughs> um, this is actually from one of my clients. It's a oh, Steinbrenner nice. trouser, but because I bought it on their website, 
I can now, you know, resell it straight from my purchases tree. Amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, well, we'll, yeah. we'll get into more yeah. about that because that sounds really interesting. But yeah. the reason I um, bring that up now is kind of go, going a step before the whole rise of, you know, influencer yeah. social media, as you mentioned, is because I am a girl of the 90s. Yeah. And I was saying to you before that my favourite all-time film, not even being funny, like yeah. no joke, is Clueless. Brilliant. And that really impacted me. And I don't know how old I must have been at the time when it came out, but obviously, yeah. you know, I was like a little girl, yeah. seven or eight or something maybe. Yeah. And I was just like, ah, oh, so amazed. I mean, all of her different outfits. I think it actually might hold a record for the amount of, for like the highest amount of different like Clothes. outfit yeah. changes and stuff. <laughs> I remember there's an interview with... Um, well, it, ca it can't compare to Bollywood films, which right. like a hundred. Right, right. This is why I don't, I don't think it's quite up there, but yeah. maybe maybe for Hollywood, like yeah. American films. Sure. Uh, but I remember like an interview with Alicia Silverstone, where yeah. she was also super young when yeah. she starred in it. And she is... Like quoted for saying like I had no idea why like I was constantly like in the change room <laughs> and of course you've got the famous scene of yeah. like the digital wardrobe and yes. so like that and my mum comes from a fashion background and stuff as well I have yeah. a huge passion for the space and so you know I kind of films like that I kind of mentioned Legally Blonde which yeah. you're kind of channeling as well at the moment so those kind of like 90s noughties like girly movies yeah. or the fashion stuff like so for me it does it goes from like before I feel like social media influences is like an easy one right. to kind of, it definitely exacerbated it for yeah. sure for sure but I think going back to the crux of it yeah uh, especially from more of that business perspective is you have to make it easier for people and what and whatever easy means whether it's more accessible yeah. cheaper faster smoother exactly. tech whatever it is yeah um and this is actually really timely interviewing you now because i've just come off kind of a week with my family they were here visiting yeah. and my sister is a huge like fast fashion addict mm -hmm. and we were down oxford street and she was looking for this particular co uh, coat and i got out my phone and i showed i showed her vintage she lives yeah. abroad right yeah. And I was like, look, you can get this coat that you're looking for. Mm. We literally found like a Zara coat, like a camel kind of trench. Yeah. Someone was selling it for like £10. Yeah. And we were like, wow, like this seller gets to make a bit of pocket money. Mm -hmm. You get to buy something without contributing to fast fashion. And I was actually kind of braced for her to be quite defensive. So as you were, oh, right. well, as you were saying, you know, there's this vast, there's still this huge amount of of the yeah. population that are still out there buying fast fashion, they're out there buying yeah. these disposable, you know, items. And she's a big, you know, fashion victim yeah. in that sense. So I was, as I say, bracing myself to do a bit of educate well and she and to my surprise she was super open to it she was yeah. like oh my god yeah amazing like why wouldn't I? Like is it trustworthy? Message the buyer. The buyer was messaging straight back. Yeah. The problem was, and this is what I want to come on back to you as well here, is the international piece. Right. So I mentioned that she was over here visiting. She lives abroad. Yeah. And we're sat here in London, which is the best city in the whole world. <laughs> and <laughs> categorically, <laughs> no argument. And yet we're here where there is so much, you know, we're right in the middle of like Silicon Roundabout. There's all this innovation. There's all this yeah. technology. There's all this great stuff. But these other places, whether it's other parts of the country or other parts of the world, yeah. you obviously come from somewhere else as well. It's like they don't have these things. They don't even have those options. So yeah. I know you were saying you're expanding into North America. You're looking at these other places. Yeah. How? Tell us more about that kind of international expansion piece and how you're helping bring that circular economy to outside of London. Yeah, I think, you know... Um, Yes, okay, things don't exist everywhere at the moment, but you'll be so surprised at how fast it's growing. Mm. Um, I was in Africa earlier this year, and the, the, the second-hand economy in Africa is growing so fast. Amazing. Um, it, it is, I mean, luxury has just, the, the, the second-hand luxury market is booming in, in Africa, um, in, in parts of Africa, and it's, it's really exciting to see, yeah. Because it's not just something the West is doing or the North is doing. It's mm. it's it is happening slowly. Mm. Um, it's like when e-commerce first started. Um, I can say, like in India, most businesses weren't online until the pandemic. Wow. So it takes certain trigger points for for things to change, and but when it does, because it's accessible, um, it will be very quick. 
And because all the technology that's being built now is very scalable, mm. um, it's not being built for specific countries. Like yeah. MyTech is, for example, it is extremely scalable because it's a plug-in. It operates as you, you would plug it into the business's normal functioning, the, the normal payment gateways, everything that the business already operates. Amazing. Um, so for us, it's very easy for to expand in other countries. And so it just it it, it needs. We're a very small team, a very small company, so we're going after countries that have already been educated. Mm. Because it is very difficult. Like, yes, you know how your sister said, like, of course, why wouldn't I do it? Yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. But sometimes, um, you know, the money you have to spend to educate people mm. can be too much and they, it, maybe they're not ready. Mm. Um, I can say, for example, the biggest hurdle five years ago when I was doing my research was, why would I wear some someone else's clothes? Mm. Like that's disgusting. <laughs> but today, no one would say that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like you can dry clean your clothes. So this is what I was going to ask you about as well, because there is you've got the first mover and second mover advantage. Yeah. And what I've actually seen is I'm more in that camp of the second movers because. Mm -hmm you need those first movers to prime exactly. and educate the market for you. So yeah. I was going to ask you that is like how much of kind of how much of education and trying to foster behavior change. Yeah. How much of that is a hurdle for you with your business? Because yeah. sometimes you can't, you know, the cost or the risk of innovation. Yeah. You can be too soon to think. No, 100 percent. Right. I think that's that's so important. I think when I first as a consumer, I was like, why wouldn't people do this? This is crazy. But then the more I talked to people, I realized no one wants to be the first mover. Yeah. Um, no, everyone thinks that. And also, bear in mind, like a lot of the times when I was pitching the idea, it was to men. And men generally keep their clothes for way longer. They don't understand the, the concept of you know, not being able to wear the same outfit to two weddings in a row. Mm. So I got a lot of that, you know, a lot of questions trying to understand why would someone do this yeah um so in my business but today it's very different so my business is a b2b product so it's more about educating the brands um that their customers are already there they're living this lifestyle of being frugal of being fashionable and mm. of being you know sustainably minded mm. so that's where people are already mm. it's more about how are you now connecting to those consumers and keeping up. Mm. Um, it's very interesting because I thought that you know the business would only be for brands that focus on Gen Z. And that's just not the case. Mm. It's more about um, if you're making the process of reselling easy, then it's not just for Gen Z and millennials. The reason the data suggests that it is is because that they're, they're generally the ones who are like the hustlers who are taking the time or have the time, frankly, <laughs> to, you know, to, to, to sort of list items, take photos, input the data. Um, but when you take that entire piece out where you don't have to do all of that, you just have to click a button and say, I want to sell, then it's for everyone. Wow, that sounds genuinely amazing. I also was under the same um, kind of misconception. I was, I was like, oh, this is more of like a Gen Z thing. That was all something I was going to ask you about yeah. with like, is that a particular segment? Like, how do you go after others? Yeah. You mentioned um, you know, Charlotte Morley, one of my other guests on the podcast yes. with the Little Loop. Obviously, that's for children's wear, mm -hmm. but you're also kind of targeting the parents with that. Yeah. Um, so explain how it actually works then. Sure. So let's go on to like resale future itself. So yes. it remembers or not remembers, but like it stores all the product information. Yeah. So we plug into a fashion brand's website. Mm -hmm. um, and then within the brand's website, you will have a marketplace. So you never have to leave the website, create an account. It's just within that ecosystem. And it remembers all your purchase history that you've bought with them. Um, so when you log in, you have an online wardrobe where you can choose, see everything you've bought, and then you can just choose to sell. Um, because we have you know, the size, the time you bought it, the price you bought it, you know, professional images, um, we also have, you know, what the, the clothing composition is. Do you have to dry clean it? Everything is still mm. there. Mm. So that entire hurdle of describing the item is completely gone. You wow. never have to do that. We have the professional images. So I don't know if you've ever shopped secondhand on, say, eBay. Mm -hmm. It's not an aspirational experience mm. for fashion lovers. So that's some another hurdle that we focused on, you know, getting rid of because it is new to... As a shopper, it's still new to you. You want to feel like it's new. Mm. Um, so we have. So if I was someone who wanted to sell an item, 
I would log on, I would choose which item I want to sell, send in a current photo, and say what price I'd like to sell it at. And that's mm. it. You know, we pick it up from your home um, and you get paid when the, the, the buyer receives it. Amazing. So who's the, like, who's the marketplace, like the community? Is it selling to the yeah. other brand's customers or does it plug into another kind of community? No, yeah, so it, it's, it's literally, um, when I log into the brand's website, or when I'm on the brand's website, there'll be a tab that says marketplace or resale feature, and then I can shop everything from that brand that's secondhand. Mm. So essentially, you know, you already have, brands already have super fans of theirs. Mm. Um, so you're attracting like, you're attracting the, a whole segment of people that want, like your brand, but maybe can't afford it. The aspirational buyers, yeah. as you say, right? Yeah. Okay, so like anyone who is just like that natural traffic they would be getting already anyway. Exactly. It's almost like, I guess, the sales section of the website, but it's exactly. actually secondhand. Yeah, but you know, I, it's, it's not only that, I'm, whenever I talk to a brand, um, we'll do research on how many of their clothes are on Vinted, eBay, um, Depop, and then, you know, we look at the monetary value of how much is being sold of their product. And they're not getting any of it. And they're it. not getting any of it. That's a very compelling right? selling point. And that's just today. Yeah. That, that turn, the turnover of that, um, of that inventory happens every two weeks. Wow. So that's so that interesting. That is so much money they're just leaving on the table. Yeah. Of, of products they put hard work to mm. produce. Mm. I love this so much because as soon as you start talking finance and numbers, yeah. like it gets these people to sit up because as you say, it is easy to be like, yeah, we should be exactly. sustainable. Yeah, <laughs> be no, like... but that's the thing. I think it's very important for businesses today that they're thinking of starting up to really understand what motivates your potential buyer. Definitely. Because it's not always going to be rosy mm. and like not everyone cares about the planet. Exactly. And the thing is, it's, it's unfair I think it's unfair to think that everyone's focus is the planet because mm, mm. Do you, the number of businesses that are going under today is crazy. Um, so the focus is to survive for mm. a lot of businesses and employ people and provide these jobs. So, you know, it can't just, everyone has a bottom line to think of. Yeah, exactly. So if you're helping them yeah. reach that bottom line while being circular, yeah. then it's a no-brainer. It's just the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Was this the title of the TED talk that you just gave about fashion, circularity, and a capitalist environment? Yeah. Was that what it was called? Yeah, it lines? was. It was called that. But the focus was, you know, on the power of imperfect sustainability. And I think, you know, you touched upon it about being one percent better. Like you don't have to be the best, and mm. you just need to like. Just if you're one percent better every day, exactly. you're thirty-seven times better at the end of the year. Yeah, right. So it's like it, it's not just, and that applies to not only like sustainable habits, but then innovation too. Yeah, yeah. No, it totally makes sense. I absolutely love the concept. Are you able to share any of the like retail brand partners that have got yes, resale future? So yeah, sure. name drop. The name drop. And I'm going to uh, go shopping. <laughs> um, so so I touched upon this earlier. So this is a Steingoyer trouser that I bought from. Biscuit, which mm -hmm. is our um, one of our clients. So Biscuit is a multi-store retailer in based up in Scotland, and they'll stock stock like Bash, Steingoya, Haley Menzies. So it's like the you know we focus on sort of the one hundred to three hundred pound mm -hmm. clothing range. Mm. Um, so we sort of launched with them our beta program, um, and one of the clients is called Kanya London. They are the South Asian wear for ASOS. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if you, you know, like that's been doing really well because now South Asian wears are accessible. Mm. Uh, and then another one we've just um, introduced is called Cara in the Sky. They're a British made knitwear brand. So they actually produce in Britain, which was super rare. Amazing. Loved her business. Um, yeah. And then we have a few upcoming um, soon. Um, but yeah, we, we launched with a few brands, you know, just building out the tech, making sure everything works. Um, there were three very different businesses in terms of their, what their needs were. Uh, and now we're at the stage where we're fundraising to scale. Amazing. So hi we're hiring a salesperson to do that. Yeah, so exciting. Yeah. So you obviously, this is a, obviously a peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, or B2B tech, yeah. tech product. Yes. So we're nearing towards one of your first strategies with the business so yeah. if we just do a quick recap so you uh obviously had your career in corporate yes in finance 
you were quite, you mentioned as well, you were quite strategic with kind of making sure you had a buffer of some cash before launching out on your own. Yeah. We can touch on that as well, because I know that you, you know, made sure that you had that runway yeah. on a very, you know, just practical level. Yeah. And then I know you got grants and things to fund the business. Mm -hmm. So just on that really quickly, your your savings from the corporate career was just to kind of sustain yourself, was yes. it? And then, yeah. so how, what was just your, just quickly your thought process on just why, that was kind of for you, and then the grants and crowdfunding was for the business. What was just the reasoning to keep those two separate, if you see what I mean? Yeah, um, well, the, the reality was is that I was applying to grants and competitions well before I'd left my job. So I realized that there was that interest in the business. People really liked the idea I was working on. So it was possible to you know fund the business through grants. Um, the, 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 obviously, I kept a, a so when I decided to quit my job, I had a bunch of savings. And I was like, look, this is how many years I can live without working and not earning an income. Um, so I will do what it takes to make sure this business then gets funded. Um, whether it's through grants or go out and raise capital, I will do what it takes. Mm. Um, it just, it, and the, the reality is, is that the time I'm putting into the company is money, mm. right? Because you gave up a lot of money to, to be working in the company. Mm. And I think that was very clear to me is that if I had, if the company needed capital, there was capital, but mm. um, luckily we didn't need to do yeah, that. Yeah, amazing. I love that. Yeah. I just, I really do. I think it is just important to share some of that because yeah. it is easy to, you know, flippantly give the advice of you know take the mm. leap just go for it and oh, especially yeah. if people are no. in a day job and like yeah. oh you know believe in yourself but like you've got to be real with it you've got to 100%. you know test the waters it's great to hear yeah. that you did some competitions to kind yeah. of see if there was demand and yeah. yeah practically you made sure that like you had your own buffer before yeah. launching out so you had that, that career for a few years yes. and uh, made sure you kind of had that safety net in place before mm -hmm. kind of launching Resale Future. Yeah. I know that you kind of pivoted a little bit from the beginning, yeah. but coming on to that, that first strategy, as I, as yes. I kind of hinted at, yeah. um, so on the tech side of things, mm -hmm. it, it is a very recurring theme with mm -hmm. tech founders. Oh my God, who, yes. unfortunately, who are not Who are not coders or you know engineers yeah. themselves time and time again honestly it is insane like yeah. pretty much a hundred like if you haven't run into trouble on yes. like building a product you are extremely lucky so mm -hmm. what happened with you on the product okay. side of things so um <laughs> <laughs> so before i quit my job i did interviews for tech teams but that was something that i was like you know once i get that that's it i'm taking the leap and i was so excited and i was so you know um when I first heard, like, you know, this is within the budget that we set out, this, this is something we can afford, um, this team sounds great, we're going to go with them. Um, you know, I, obviously I did an interview with them and I interviewed a couple of other teams, but I was like, you know, this person really gets it, they get why we're doing it. Um, unfortunately, so I quit my job, start working with them um, on my initial idea. So my initial idea was to build a B2C, sorry, a, um, I guess it's a B2C to C product. It was a marketplace for customers where they could resell garments that were only in season. So the idea was that the reason people weren't buying from eBay was that it was just old clothes from my mom's wardrobe or you know it was just stuff dumped that nobody wanted. But if you could make that process more aspirational, fashionable, people would use it. And the fact that people are using clothes only once they would then, you know, realize they could make back most of their money if they just sold it immediately. Uh, and then we built some tech around, you know, validating that the product was in season. Um, but that process, the, the, the technical team I did hire, just, they didn't get it, right? Like, I think it's very easy to um, have a great salesperson that you talk to before you sign a contract. But the mistake I made is I did an interview who the project manager was going to be. I think it's the project manager's role is the most important, um, in my opinion, because they need to really get it and they need to really want to innovate. Because if they don't want to do that, they won't. It, it will just be, you will just get something that's already been done before. Um, 
so that was my mistake, the project manager. And, you know, working with different back-end and front-end teams, I think I just didn't have the right questions to ask them. Um, but what that did do was that was just before COVID. We started building. It took incredibly long to build that. Um, such a waste of my time, such a waste of money. Um, but what COVID did was obviously no one was going out. So no one was buying those you know, clothes and recirculating it. It gave me time to think about, right, people are selling clothes a lot more now. So people are getting used to that. Like every, it's like such a focus in the media now. Brands are picking up on it, that this is the future. And then I started talking to brands being like, what do you think about this? And then when I, I, I had a few conversations with bigger companies um, and well, I went to a sustainability conference. So every big company has a sustainability officer now. And they were saying, oh my God, like, you know, we've been trying to find someone to do it. They just haven't managed to do it for our business. We hired some, one person said, we hired a team. They just couldn't do it with Shopify. This happened, that happened. So we had to like, and I thought like, all of these people are the leaders in the fashion industry and everyone else is gonna follow suit. So this is actually a need that I can fill if I'm already creating a platform. So basically, yes, I worked with a, t with a team that didn't work out for me, but that led me to be able to pivot. But then when I did find the next team, I knew exactly what to do. And it was so good. Like the team I have now, touch wood, they're incredible. And I think the number one thing I would say of why I like this team or the one thing I knew this was the right team was because in my contract, when I, I said to them that, you know, you're not allowed to talk about what we're doing. Um, you're not allowed to talk about what we're doing. And they pushed back on that and they were like, wait, why? If we're building something for you, you know, we want to, we want to be able to talk about it because that's something like, that is literally why I do my job is because I like to create new things and it, I'm not doing it to make money or like ticking it off. It's like, I only take on interesting projects that I care about. And I was like, oh, that I didn't think of that. It's like, I always know personally, I'm the kind of person that if I'm doing a job and my name is attached to it, I will do it as well as possible. And I don't sleep, like I will do it. And it's very rare to find people like that and where if their name is attached to it, they want, they want it to be the best. And I was like, this is when I knew that they were good. And I also read that they were in a lot of articles and blogs and people were writing about them. So they cared about what they were doing. That's good. That's really helpful. You, you need that sense of pride with partners. And I think yeah. especially with tech, it's something that's so like it's it's your product. It's it your, is, yeah. you know, unless you've got a CTO yeah. or you learn how to code yourself mm -hmm. or there's a way that you can bring it in house, which is so expensive. Yeah. This is where it's such a common recurring problem because yeah. there are so many third party providers, external mm -hmm. agencies yeah. that it is kind of it is weird when you break it down and you step back and you look at it because it's like it's not, you know, that kind of service based B2B model that you would get in other industries like marketing, yeah. brand design, whatever. Where it's like I need a campaign. Cool. Yeah, yeah. This is like, you know, it's another level of yeah. that, you know, intricacy that I guess intricately, it, it is the product. Yeah, <laughs> like no, for sure. it needs to be like an extension of your team. Yeah. So, but what through. I will add to that is, um, it's really important. So the mistake I made is I didn't ask the right questions, and the reason I made that mistake is because I didn't talk about my idea. I was so focused on you know what, you know, everyone's watched social network and thinks everyone's going to steal their idea if you talk to a developer. It's, it's ridiculous because no one has time to do that. But I didn't speak to other people who've gone through the same process, mm. right? If had I talked to a project manager, they would have told me exactly what I need to ask, yeah. what the costs are going to be, what the timeline's mm. gonna be. It's like, it's unreal the kind of insight I now have yeah. that I could give someone else had had you been more open about it exactly yeah and then the second time round, that's exactly what i did <laughs> i went to like uh, one of my friends um also who quit his job during the same time and was building a, a tech product he had he went you know he got he, he went straight to get funding so he already had built the product manager team uh sorry the product team so 
speaking to them was so useful because they'd done it and they'd pivoted and they'd pivoted. Right. So they had gone through that process and I can't explain how useful that information was. Yeah. So if you do have an idea, like please speak about it to the relevant <laughs> people who can help. Yeah, I love that. And obviously, I mean, massively resonates here yeah. because that's part of the purpose of exactly this podcast. Yeah. You where it is like I, I genuinely believe that enough people have made you know, the same mistakes yeah. over and over. Like, yes, we're all doing amazing different innovative things and yeah. everyone's forging their own path of course obviously yeah. but you know the stuff about the tech teams the first pancake like all mm. this stuff that goes wrong i or i found myself in a very privileged position hearing all these stories from all these yeah. different people i'm like wow if you spoke to each other mm. how much time and money you could save yeah. but then i get at the same time you kind of need to go through some of these mistakes make them yourself for sure so key takeaways from that is i mean i before just summarizing, I wouldn't really beat yourself up too much about that either, because another commonality we do see a lot is the first pancake is, mm. you know, what was interesting about your particular experience was you had the combination of both an idea that wasn't quite hitting the nail on the head in terms of the product market fit yeah. combined with, uh, you know, tech team, the, the product partners yeah. that weren't quite aligned either. So, you know, neither of those things were, were in a great situation. So it was very much, you know, write that off. It's the first pancake type of thing. Yeah. So the key learnings from that was to not be so kind of overly protected <laughs> about your own idea, like talk to other people, like they're not going to steal it. Yeah. See what you can learn from others. And then really practically when you're talking to, you know, the product team or development agencies, the sales guy or woman is always going to say yes. And yeah speak to the project manager, speak mm -hmm. to other members of the team. Um, 100%, yeah. Any other key learnings from that particular experience? And try to see if they care about innovating. Yeah. Because it's very easy to produce something that, I mean, today it's really easy to take things off the shelf, especially with the AI and ChatGPT. You can literally copy UI. You can copy so much now. Um, but if you want to create a solution that hasn't been done before, um, they need to understand and want to do. And I, this isn't just for the tech team. This is for anyone you hire. Um, they need to have the right mindset. Yeah. Mm. Because at such an early stage in, in the company, you can't have someone who needs a lot of direction. It needs to come from themselves. Yeah. You need... and. It's just a personality type some people mm, have and some mm. people don't. Everyone needs to bring that energy, don't they? Especially yeah. in the early days. Or just like think three steps ahead. Like, right. what can you do? Mm. Um, obviously, you know, to get the paycheck, you do X, Y, Z, and like that's that's it. But it's also thinking about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we reached out to that person because they're doing that podcast? Or it's just like thinking about or like getting educated in the field or who, the, even if you're like. If your role is just to make sales calls, it would be still interesting for reading about what tech is going on, right? Mm. Like it's just, you need to, yeah. There's always ways that you can stay like proactive and exactly. ahead of the, the game, right? Exactly, the word is proactive. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. On, on the mindset thing as well, something I wanted to ask you about is I know that you've talked about having that, um, that solution mindset and actually yes. how you've almost retrained your mind to look at these problems as opportunities to solve, which is yeah. also like yeah. such an essential like entrepreneurial characteristic. Mm -hmm. It's really timely as well because I'm actually reading the book Mindset by Carol Dweck, which I actually do not recommend at all. Oh, really? And I feel like me not recommending it will actually get more people intrigued and <laughs> curious and want okay, to read it. You have to tell us why. <laughs> I really, I really don't recommend it at all. I think it's very, very, very reductive. I think that it, um, I think it completely belittles mental health issues and oh, there's a wow. lot of I, I don't like the particular style that it's written I feel like it's also one of those books where you can tell when it's the author and when it's the ghostwriter mm -hmm. that kind of switches in tone and I think for such a bestseller that's quite surprising mm -hmm. but yeah there, there's a, but you know I get a lot of you know the 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 core message is obviously as you're saying having more of that growth mindset and treating yeah. those things as it's really about getting the ego out of the way and being like right is this constructive criticism that can help yeah. me to grow or fix things so mm -hmm. what have you done is there anything kind of practically that you've done to help 
because I just I feel like it's still a lot easier said than done like I feel mm -hmm. like especially when times are tough yeah and there's just so much coming your way and you've got to roll with the punches it's easy to be like can you know can someone give <coughs> me a break can someone yeah. throw me a bone here how like do you maintain that growth mindset the problem solving do you have any tips on yeah. that I mean, I, I'm going to be honest, there's some days where I'm like, this is not for me, what am I doing? And then literally, like, 12 hours later, I'll be the happiest person. <laughs> um, I think having that attitude is so important in entrepreneurship, just because you're going to get so many no's. Mm. And, like, I know a lot of people who have never faced rejection before, because... Wow. You know, you go to school, you get good grades, you get into university, mm. you get a good job, and it's... It's not, f you, if you're comfortable mm. getting rejected or mm. comfortable not doing um, better than other people, mm. because you're always going to compare yourself against all your other friends who are doing so well and earning millions or thousands that you're not, mm. um, I think then you're good to push through the tough times. Mm, that really resonates as well. I mean, there's so much wrong with the education system and we definitely mm. do not have time to get into yeah. like schools and stuff. But, but I think just, just to touch on that, yeah. I think the reason most people find it difficult is because you're comparing yourself to everyone else because mm. we're so taught to, you know, you get the job, you mm. get the house, you save up for this, you say, so it's, it's, if you can get comfortable not like with people doing way better than you mm. around you, then you're going to innovate and you're going to try things and you're going to fail and you're going to try again. Mm. And I think that's what entrepreneurship kind of mm. is, is that you're going to have days where you feel like crap and then you're like, oh, but I did this. Yeah. Oh, but I built this. And yeah. Then, like I won that. So it's all a matter of perspective, isn't yeah. it? Like you're always going to find people who are better and worse off than you. Yeah. And what I'm just reflecting on here, which is really interesting is what resonates with me in particular is I always did well at school. Like mm. I was always like very academic, like top of the class, yeah. like you name it, like teacher's yes. pet. And <clears throat> it's, it's funny because it's like, on the one hand, it gave me a lot of confidence, which you definitely need yeah. to go and forge your own path in this world. But at the same time, do you know what actually happens more with, um, I, I have a lot of friends who went to Oxbridge and I see that happen much more with them on like another level where mm -hmm. they've gone from being top of their class, yeah. like really good, like the, you know, big fish in a small pond to then being thrown in yeah. to this ocean with a ton of other big fish. Yeah. And I think that that's much more exacerbated where they have had their whole upbringing, like their childhood being told that they are prodigies, they're mm -hmm. child geniuses, getting yeah. A stars, all this, that and the other. And then, you know, it's like this stuff at an early age already has such a huge impact. It has that ripple effect mm -hmm. from from early on. But then it's like, you know, that's the first two decades basically of your life. You know, you're yeah. then 18, you're a young adult and then yeah. you go into this other environment and it's like the defensiveness that comes from these sort yeah. of characters, which is just completely yeah. understandable, but it's like, that's the default reaction because, oh, I'm no longer yeah. the brightest kid in the class. I mean, that's exactly where, I went to Imperial where people were exactly like Right, right? Like, <laughs> okay, so not just Oxbridge. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> everyone there is so intelligent. Mm. Um, you get thrown in. I found Imperial quite difficult. I wasn't someone who found it easy. Um, and I was okay to say that. I think I was like, that was a difficult degree to get. Um, but you know, that's that's exactly what I saw. I think it's very hard for people to accept that. To have not... that growth mindset, yeah, yeah, when you've not had it. So I know that we need to start wrapping up, but I feel yeah. like I've blinked and the time has just gone. I, I feel like I've got so many other questions <laughs> to ask you. I'm gonna selfishly ask you one before we finish on the final question I always end mm. things on. So the one question, the penultimate one yes. is, there was a specific anecdote that you had to share, which was around kind of networking and chance encounter. Yes. I just feel like that's also important to share because mm -hmm. you never know kind of what can come from these chance yes. instances. So what was the story on that quickly? Okay, sure. So I think for me, I really benefited from, from networking. I think even the day I, um, so I ended up working at Barclays Investment Banking and the reason I even got into that was because I attended an event after school 
uh, after university to um, a networking event where I met someone, they introduced me to what banking was. Um, so for me, that kind of that one chance meeting changed the course of my life. But then even in business, um, I think me going out to events, like the first client we ever got was through meeting, um, meeting them at an event where I was like, this is what I'm trying to build. And they were like, oh my God, you know, we were thinking about how we can like extend the life of our garments because we see people are wearing it once and it's quite sad. How can we resell it and how can we make money from it? So we were thinking of building it ourselves. And I thought that's crazy. That's that's insane for you to build it yourself. So I think that one meeting mm. led to obviously my customer number one, but also rethinking about my entire business, um, being able to pivot. And I think like even the latest customer I got was literally through um, sitting next to her at Curve Club and being like, hey, what are you doing? And she was like, that's what I'm doing. I love what you're doing. Um, so it's just, it's just incredible because if I may say, I can think back at that, that networking event I went to at, at Imperial and the event um, where I met my latest client and I didn't want to go. Like I was mm. so tired. Interesting. I had like, I was working late nights. Um, I really, it was raining. I still remember, I was like, <laughs> I don't want to go to this event after after Imperial. And, and I was just like, you know what? You just never know, just go. Wow. Just go. And I think like ever since then, I, I just pushed myself to go to things mm. where you, you know, everyone has those days, they just don't want to turn yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. But you'd never know. Yeah, amazing. Obviously, I wouldn't say put it in front of like the work of building the product because there are people I know who are networking all the time and have no product. So I wouldn't say like there's an extreme to it too, but mm. there's a beauty of, of like, making those connections. Yeah. And you don't need to be, you don't need to make a connection with everyone in the room, but like one meaningful connection that night. Can change the course. Can change the course. Amazing. Yeah. That's so interesting. So final question. Yes. So the best lessons can often come from the biggest mistakes. Mm -hmm. What is a tragedy, so to speak, that's happened yeah. to you that you will never forget that has really taught you a lesson that's stuck with you? Ooh. Um, so many. The biggest tragedy had to be, you know, wasting that time with a development team that didn't work out for me. And I think the, the biggest reason that that mistake was made was because I didn't feel comfortable speaking to people and asking for help. I think everyone wants to do everything on their own and be like, oh, I did it myself. Or I think if you can talk to someone who's been at least like one or two or even five steps ahead of you, find those people because they will be incredibly invaluable. Even if it's like something so small as, um, you know, spending two days finding an accountant. Whereas like if I just asked someone who was one step ahead of me, um, it would have saved me so much time. So I think that's something that I'm still working on is being able to, to minimize time spent on things that if I just asked someone, it would have been yeah. yeah well done Tanya that's amazing I'm so pleased for you I absolutely you. love the concepts that you're building Thanks. I have no Excited. doubt that it will be a massive success and thank you so much for tuning into the show I really hope that you enjoyed this episode don't forget to subscribe it really means a lot and helps us out thank you so much tune into next time